Welcome to another episode of the Hat Collecting Talk Show, where we talk about the many different metaphorical hats that people wear in their lives, because no one does just one thing, and everyone has a story. And on the show, you get to hear those stories. I am your host, Lacey Artemis, a creative Jill of many hats, and I am joined today by Kitty Stryker, who is a street medic, an anarchist doomsday prepper, an asexual sex worker, and a consent culture influencer. Kitty's pronouns are she and her. Welcome to the show, Kitty. Thank you so much. Great to be yeah. here. Yeah, we uh, we just finished recording the Fascinator, so uh, look forward to that on, on YouTube as well. I've been forgetting to mention those during the main episode, which is, a, I gotta get better with that. Um, but yeah, the, the first question that I like to start this show out with uh, to get us kind of on the road uh, is, where did you grow up? I grew up in a small town in Massachusetts, um, in between Worcester and Framingham, in a very suburban area everybody on my street had like a pristine manicured lawn and then there was my house which had 13 sacred trees growing in it a man-made pond and a crow feeder (laughs) so our lawn could not be mowed it had to be scythed by my Mm. dad um, who wore a cape and a leather zorro hat to do this um we definitely stood out. <laughs> Sounds like it. Um, and yeah, for when I have guests, uh, most of my guests thus far have been Toronto based like myself. But when I get a guest who isn't, I like to ask, do you think that the place where you grew up had any kind of lasting influence on you that still you still kind of feel or sense to this day? Yes, in that I feel like growing up pagan in Massachusetts made me an other very early on. And I immediately gravitated towards anybody else who was also othered by a white, heterocentric, Christian environment. So a lot of my friends were super diverse. Um, I was often friends with like the only non-white people in the area, all five of them or whatever. It was an extremely white, Christian, straight space. And so as someone who stood out from an early age, because my parents also stood out, I think I was open to a huge diversity of cultures and mindsets and religions that a lot of people I grew up with weren't open to. And I think that carried on throughout. Now I live in a much more diverse um, environment. And I think it served me well to listen more than I talk. Very nice. Um, So I'm going to take this opportunity to do our usual land acknowledgement for the show. Uh, Toronto or Tuckeronto is located on the traditional unceded territory of the Mississaugas of the New Credit First Nations, the Huron-Wendat, the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, and the Anishinaabe. This is a dish with one spoon treaty territory, and we are uninvited visitors on this land. You can learn more about this at native-land.ca, which despite the .ca actually does cover the entire world and not just Canada. So that is a good place to get started quickly and uh, begin your learning process, but don't end it there. Uh, and I believe that you said that you had uh, one as well. Yeah. Yeah. I live in Berkeley, which sits in the territory of Huchin part of the stolen land of the Chokenyo Aoloni. 
Thank you for that. Um, yeah. It's always uh, nice. Like I don't make the guests uh, bring bring that information, but when they do, it is a welcome uh, addition. Um, so with that said, uh, this is the part where we start to kind of get into things a bit. Um, I mentioned in the introduction a few of the things that you do or are known for. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got into those things? I was raised pagan and an anarchist. Um, my parents fairly quickly regretted teaching me not to respect authority because that also meant them. Being an activist was a part of how I was raised. I was out there with my parents protecting abortion clinics from being bombed back when that was a very constant concern. Um, I marched in the take back the night rallies, like when I was five or something. Activism, but very specifically feminist activism was something I was raised with. I quickly got into environmental activism as well. Um, my parents tell me a story that I was like, eight or something, maybe 10, when I wrote a letter to um, then President Bill Clinton, expressing all of my concerns about the environment and climate change. And I got back a form letter and a headshot, which I promptly burned in the front lawn, because I was very angry. Um, so yeah, like distrust of authority figures to solve problems on the ground came very early. And um, from there, I think a distrust in capitalism, which kind of led me into sex work. I grew up very comfortable with my body until I was, you know, in my late teens, early 20s. Like that was when I struggled with body image stuff. And sex work ended up being a way to regain control over my body and my image and becoming more comfortable in that seeing value in it, uh, interestingly, which was complicated for me as I got older and realized I was asexual. Yeah, I, I guess a lot of the ways that I've come into all of the aspects of who I am, I sort of tripped and fell into it. <laughs> to put it in a sort of tarot idea, I live the fool card. I am constantly walking off a cliff and not looking where I'm going, but just sort of trusting that I'm going where I need to go and that I'm learning what I need to learn. Hmm. I can relate somewhat to that myself. <laughs> so I appreciate that answer. The next question, the sub question to that question that I like to ask is, um, do you think there's like a, a big or predominant misconception in kind of the general public about the, each of the different things that you do? Oh God. Yeah. Um, I mean, being an asexual sex worker just seems completely foreign for a lot of people. I also identified for a long time as a sex negative pornographer. Um, I live in that confusing space a lot of the time because I understand nuance and I understand, I, my understanding of the world is that under a white supremacist capitalist patriarchy, I don't know that it's possible to 100% give consent in a way that's not coerced by external forces and internal forces. Like we're constantly under pressure for how to act and how to think and how to be. Um, and I think sometimes people hear that and think that means they don't have to try. For me, 
I think about that and it means that I have to try harder, that there is more reason to be accountable because there is more of a likelihood to cross a boundary or to hurt somebody unintentionally. And therefore being radically vulnerable is extremely important. I think with with sex work, there's this idea that your consent only counts if you're enthusiastic in a way that doesn't really count when it comes to other jobs. Like nobody asked me if I was enthusiastic about retail, um, but I'm expected to only like sex work is only okay if I love it all the time in a way that I think is kind of unfair. Um, and um, I, at the same time, I also feel like sex work is work, but it's not necessarily like other types of work. And some of that stigma, but some of it's also like, I was not judged for my body working retail the way that I am as a sex worker. Those kinds of comments are seen as inappropriate uh, in a in some work environments. And that's not to say that, I mean, there's lots of dress code issues, how you can have your hair, what is considered professional, especially being plus sized, like a lot of things that are not considered professional for me are considered professional on someone's splendor. So like that stuff definitely comes into play. But there's also this expectation of like, when you are in a industry that focuses on your attractiveness, modeling or sex work or acting, people commenting, like they feel very entitled to comment on your body in a way that is dehumanizing and that I disassociate from a lot, which I think blends into my asexuality. But it doesn't make me hate my body and it doesn't make me hate like I don't feel traumatized by the sex that I had as a sex worker um I feel completely apathetic about it <laughs> which is something I think people can't conceptualize as being okay um I think I've come to terms with the fact that there's a lot of things in my life that I feel fairly meh about and that's not bad or good it just is um, then, you know, you get into being a street medic and being an anti-fascist activist and working alongside Black Walk. And yeah, absolutely. People have lots of ideas of what that looks like and what that means. And um, the number of people who think that I'm out there throwing Molotov cocktails at, at cop cars as like my weekend um, experience. God, I wish, but no, that's not what I'm doing. I'm usually like cleaning up cat litter and like, you know, making sure my local unhoused neighbors are fed. It's not nearly as glamorous, but, um, you know, it's work that needs to be done. There's obviously misconceptions out there about every kind of work. And so every time I get to talk to anyone that does anything, it's like, okay, let's teach people what they might be a little bit mistaken about and we're all a little bit better for it i think so thank you for sharing that yeah absolutely um yeah and so the next question here um if you remember when you were a child uh, do you remember what you wanted to be or to do when you grew up i wanted to be a veterinarian for a long time and then i realized that that meant that i would have to like witness animal death a lot and i was like nope 
I am way too soft for that. Um, so then I really wanted to be a lawyer and I used to, I had a, like a um, mahogany desk. I don't know where my parents had gotten this, but I had this big mahogany desk and I made myself with paper, a little nameplate. And I would put that up on the desk and I would sit my cat down on a chair on the other side and like ask them about like their case. I didn't end up going into law in part because I have a very hard time with my ADHD focusing enough to be able to memorize things. Um, so the medical field and the legal field is not really great for me. But um, I do think that that desire to see justice done drives a lot of my activism. And I hope um, the desire to let people be fallible, I think, um, is really, really important to me. Like, I recognize, that maybe that's also partially why I didn't go into law. Like, I understand that people want things to be very black and white. There is a victim and a perpetrator. Um, and I think that, especially when it comes to consent culture, especially when it comes to activist communities, there's a lot of simultaneous things happening. There's a lot of power dynamics at play that are harder to sift through. And we're all wounded animals stumbling through the brush. I try to maintain a way of be, like encouraging people to be accountable and creating accountability processes that also recognizes that people can grow and evolve. And that is something that I want to believe in more than I believe that people are evil. I think there are some people who don't care about evolving and changing. Um, and I don't believe that everyone is redeemable or that every behavior is redeemable. But I do think a lot of them are more redeemable than we like to admit sometimes on the left. And so I think my drive as a child to like be an arbitrator of justice has led me to try to be compassionate to how painful and complicated and traumatized a lot of people are, while also being firm that do no harm, but take no <laughs> basically. And it's a hard place to be in. And I don't think I always get it right. You know, it's something I'm going to be learning and practicing my whole life. Part of the, A big part of this show has been kind of revolving around this idea that, you know, there's this cultural narrative and this idea that we are supposed to have our lives mostly figured out by a certain age. And for a lot of us, that's not the case. And as I've been talking to more and more people, because most of the guests have been kind of in the, the 30, 30 to 40 kind of range. Um, and it, it seems like we've been getting the sense that, um, you know, a little bit older makes a bit more sense now for kind of our generation. But um, the question that I'm asking that that seems to be where the real valuable answer or the valuable insight is, is what age, and I, and I don't know if you can, this also depends if you consider yourself currently on a path that you like and you want to stay on for a while, but what age were you at when you kind of first got onto your current path? I'm like on multiple paths at any given time. The sex industry path is one that I am very happy to have walked on. I'm very happy to be sort of leaving behind. That said, I am going to be doing another 
performance next month. So like, I've ne- you never fully leave. But yeah, I feel like it was good for the time. And I learned what I needed to learn from that. And then I started transitioning into focusing more on writing. Uh, but I was writing the whole time I was doing sex work. So you know, sort of having one foot in that and one foot in writing and one foot in doing street activist stuff. I mean, I'm still very invested in that. Yeah, I guess I've had a lot of turning that have led me to where I'm at now. And I think that if I was to say the path that I'm on, the path that I'm on is what is something that I'm learning about myself that I can have other people witness and maybe learn something about themselves at the same time? And how do I empower people to be, again, radically vulnerable? That's like the core path. And the way that that manifests is in a lot of different ways. I'm focusing a lot of energy right now on creating sober spaces within LGBTQ communities, because that's something that I'm working through, being sober. And it feels really important to me to, as I'm working through those issues, help create that space for other people who are also working through that, um, but maybe don't resonate with AA. Um, Where do you go from there? How do you, I don't know, like rediscover how to be social, how to date as a sober person, especially in a community that often meets at bars. So that's, really interesting path to be on. Um, And that's something that I'm learning about myself. And I write very openly and very, I'm very raw about that. Because other people see that and say, Oh, yeah, that makes sense for me too. The path of radical vulnerability that started for me in around 2012. I had a big emotional breakdown on social media a lot of people were very concerned for my well-being. And it was so freeing. It was so freeing to not have to have a facade anymore and to have to perform being okay all the time. Um, Because I've been a community leader ever since I was like 19 in different communities, but constantly always under that pressure to be okay, to be the strong friend. And like letting that go was such a relief and has really led me to change the way that I do my activism, has led me to ask people for help very publicly and often. That process has shown other people that it's okay to ask for help. (laughs) All right. And and sub-question to that one, you may have sort of indirectly answered a little bit already, but I like to ask, because again, there's this idea of this path that we get onto, and there's different factors that affect when we get onto our path, when we sort of figure out what we want to be doing or what we should, you know, should be doing in air quotes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's obviously different factors and different obstacles. And so I'd like to ask, what do you think, or what would you say is perhaps the biggest obstacle or one of the biggest obstacles for you to getting onto your current path sooner, perhaps? Money. Absolutely. Uh, Living under a white supremacist capitalist patriarchy really blows for making money off of activism. Um, It's it's difficult because almost all of the areas of passion that I have are areas that 
I get a lot of grateful emails for, but nobody wants to pay for any of it. Like we all know that consent activism is vital. And also we don't really want to pay for a workshop. And we all know that like diversity of sex work voices are super important, but are we going to pay somebody for their appearance on a panel? No, probably not. So like there's that tension of like, we know that these voices are valuable and important, but we're all still scared of scarcity. And so pay, paying for that um, is difficult. Now, I have worked on that by having a Patreon. And so my Patreon patrons pay me each month so that I can go and do panels and I can do podcasts and I can make TikToks and I can follow my passions without worrying about it directly paying me. Because my patrons know that they're paying me in in society's stead. So like I've managed to make that work for me. The things I could do if I got paid more would be amazing. You know, like I would be able to invest so much more time on the International Festival of Consent that happens in November. I'd be able to finish writing my book about like relationship skills for activists so that you can maintain healthy relationships while also not just to other people, but also to yourself Um, and not just romantic relationships, but your friendships and your family. Um, I would love to be able to invest more time in that, but you know, it, it, I gotta pay rent too. So (laughs) um, it's uh, that's probably the biggest point of tension. Um, and the other, the other thing that probably stands in my way the most is existential dread. (laughs) Like I I've been talking to a couple of other friends my age about this and realizing that like, I'm very unlikely to get married and I'm not going to have children and seeing my older friends who are now struggling with health issues and struggling with not being able to work, but not getting enough money from the government to survive. That really stresses me out. And I and fundamentally, that's still money, <laughs> you know, but it's like different money. It's it's resources in a very different way. Yeah, that sometimes makes me go, oh, I can't be doing activist work right now. I have to work. I put my nose to the grindstone and put money in my savings account so that I can survive when I'm older. But then that also kind of makes me want to invest more in my activism because I want to help create solutions, not just for myself, but for everybody on how to make that less of a problem, how to achieve universal basic income, how to make sure that everyone can be housed. So it's sort of a gamble. Like, is it better to like focus on myself and then be able to help others from a place of individual stability? Or is it better to focus on the, on the bigger picture and hope that that trickles down to me in time? I, I, uh, that, that's a can of worms. I'll go, I'll go into that briefly from my side of things, because I can definitely relate to that in a sense as well. Like it has occurred to me that I am never going to be able to like retire the way that a lot of our kind of parents and grandparents did. And 
and I have been able to save a bit of money, but it's, it's not like, I keep thinking to myself, okay, this, if I suddenly lost my job, like it wouldn't get me very far. And, and just trying to actively save towards this like future that, that I'm, I'm becoming less and less convinced is going to happen or even be possible. And it's, it's making me think more and more like, okay, what could this money do for me or for others right now? Like if I just expect that, that I'm not going to, you know, cruise to this comfy 60, 65 year old, you know, you know, living at a cottage kind of year round or whatever, and like spending winters in Florida, like that's not going to happen for me. And so like, there's even things like different, yeah, there's just a lot of different things that I've been kind of like, I'd kind of like that, or I'd kind of like to do that, or I'd like to kind of help with that. But um, like, you know, if I won the lottery, like there's a million GoFundMes out there that I would love to just be like, here, 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 because there's so many people that need help really badly. And I wish that I could do more for a lot of them. And, and like kind of what you were saying, like, in a way, this show is one way for me to try to put something positive and helpful and valuable out into the world where I can't necessarily, cause like I haven't had the, the like physical energy in a couple of years now. I used to go to protests when I could, and I just, my body just can't really handle it as much anymore. And that makes me kind of sad because I know how important and valuable it is to have physical presence for certain things and to be willing to put yourself at risk like that. And, you know, I guess technically now I'm more able to financially help, but even there I have my limits. And uh, so it's just, yeah, it can be, it can feel really frustrating to feel like I just can't even possibly hope to do as much as I want to do. And this like, this retirement fantasy is, is just that it's a fantasy for a lot of us now and owning a home or like you said, getting married and having kids. Like, it's like, is that even going to happen for me now? And I, I don't know. And so I'm, I've been having this kind of ongoing debate and I still am of like, what, what am I going to do? Like, am I just going to have to give it a couple more years and then decide, okay, forget even like working towards that retirement, just like, you know, maybe plan for the next like 10 years to really do what you can. And then after that, hopefully things will work out. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I've been thinking a lot, like it's weird because I'm 37. And so a lot of the people my age are like, not quite at that point yet. So they're just like, Oh, well, you know, I still have enough time to have a career, whatever. And I'm just like looking at the writing on the wall and I'm like, careers don't exist anymore. Like there's no stability at all. And I think it's only going to get more unstable, which I'm able to adjust for right now. Um, And I've had a lot of different life experiences and I've been able to maneuver for now. But yeah, I'm also super aware that like, if I need to be in assisted living in my 70s, I'm out of luck on that. There is that sense of like, Oh, okay. Um, so what can I, what can I do to plan for that? And like, I keep coming back to that, like queer fantasy of like, okay, co-ops, cooperative living. And there's this part of me that's like, Oh, you know, what's going to happen. Someone's going to run off with all the money. That's what always happens with these things. Um, and so it's like, 
oh, trying to get other people around my age to like talk to me about like, what are their plans? You know, I mean, my parents kind of morbidly say like, oh, well, like you'll get the house when we die and you can sell that. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know what that means though. Like I've never had assets like that before. I don't know how to manage them properly. It's sort of um, a very waspy thing to not discuss money. But when you're poor, you also have to discuss money. And so while my parents are more like middle class, I'm very working class. And so I'm like, we need to talk about these things. I need to know what I need to know so that I can plan, like, am I going to be able to buy some land in Montana to retire on as a elderly person or is my retirement plan like do a bunch of heroin like you know what what am I going to be able to do I don't know um and yeah that is super stressful um so I think that's part of why I wear a lot of hats because it means that I can make myself an asset to any sort of community situation and I feel very confident in that so like I feel like whatever happens I'm going to be able to slide in somewhere as a child care person or as somebody's carer or, you know, as the demolition derby driver who like gets us through the Mad Max atmosphere, you know, like something, I'll have something up my sleeve. It's, it's interesting to me, like people have asked me about this show and like what kind of things I've learned. And like, so I'm also 37 and it's it's just striking me how we had very different upbringings and have a different life ex- like very different life experiences but i guess kind of some of the same core values and we find ourselves at kind of a similar point and kind of thinking yeah. about the future in a similar way and i don't know if that's like more of a generation thing or if that's just i i don't know but it's it's interesting to me <laughs> yeah my housemate is a little bit younger than me but it's absolutely going through the same thing and so I'm I basically I'm creating my uh my adventuring party right now. It's <laughs> like, okay, let's stick together. Like let's try to commit to something and like start looking at what it would cost to buy land uh with a well. And like let's learn some carpentry skills so we can build a house and like, you know, figure out how to do this in a society that isn't really primed for us surviving. Um the dystopia is now, you know, and so it feels comfortable. I'm inside a house. I have a roof over my head. I have power, but the dystopia is definitely still now. Um, and, uh, and I'm, I'm relatively lucky, you know, uh, more and more people are finding themselves unhoused and finding themselves living out of their car and still going to a 40 hour, um, a week job you know, and that not being enough to survive on. Mm-hmm. The collapse of society is both something I'm terrified of and also, like, it can't come soon enough. <laughs> like, oh, boy. Yep, yep. <laughs> um, well, to, to, on switch that on, note. <laughs> <laughs> to switch on to a slightly more upbeat uh, uh, thing. So the next question here is uh, about this idea of self-care. And I kind of give this spiel every episode about how, 
you know, when I first heard of this concept, it was always talked about in the context of like, you know, fancy dinners or going to the spa or really basically like expensive, fancy things. But self-care, like especially for my friends and my generation, it's much more simple than that a lot of the time. And so I like to ask my guests, what is the last act of self-care that you did for yourself, no matter how small it was? I've had a couple of things. Like, first of all, eating is usually a thing of self-care that is difficult for me to remember to do. So I made myself a meatball sandwich, which was both self-care in the short term in that I ate a proper meal and self-care in the long term in that I got rid of a leftover in my fridge. So that was sort of a, a dual action self-care thing. A bigger self-care thing was um, advocating for myself with my doctor and having them actually give me MRIs and x-rays for my back and my um, my left leg. And we found out that I had a, um, a birth defect, that one of the discs in my spine is actually half the size it's supposed to be, which has led to back pain, which has led to a difference in my gait, which has led to leg problems. I've never been so excited to have a birth defect because I've been talking to doctors for 20 years and they would not give me any kind of care until I lost weight. And I had to fight so hard for this moment. And then to be vindicated after 20 years was just the best thing ever. Um, I did not yell in your face and I'm very proud of myself for that. But like there was, uh, you know, realizing that I can trust my gut and I can trust my lived experience and that I am an expert on my own body was, uh, was really validating. So like, that's not self-care in the, I had a nice bath or, you know, I bought myself something cute kind of way but in a very long-term life satisfaction kind of way. Yeah, no, I mean, any any answer is totally valid to that question, and I definitely appreciate those answers for sure. Um, so the next question here, I like to ask my guests, because again, this is about learning, or at least that's one of the kind of uh, underlying goals. And so I like to ask my guests, what is the last new thing that you learned, whether it was a skill or a piece of information, and what is something you would still like to learn? Oh, I mean, I learned a lot of nonsense car stuff watching all of the Fast and the Furious movies over like four days. But frankly, I did not remember any of it. <laughs> I guess I learned what Tokyo drifting was. That was that was new. I have a Saturn and we'll never be doing that in my car because there's no way it can handle it. It is made of plastic. The last like cool thing that I learned, um, I recently installed a new coolant system in my car. Um, one of the areas of prepping that I've been getting excited about is learning how to fix my car myself and learning how to diagnose things that are wrong with my car. So like being able to pull my car apart and reinstall the, uh, like put in a new, um, radiator and put in new hoses and assess like where the coolant was leaking from and how to fix it. That was really, really fun. 
and really cool. And being able to do that with fake nails on was also super validating for my feminist. So um, yeah, that's probably the coolest new thing that I have learned. Something I would like to learn. Um, I'm constantly teaching myself how to cook. I would love to get confident enough in my cooking skills that I can veer off recipe more. Um, I'm still at a point where I have recipes memorized and I can do it without looking at a recipe, but I would love to be able to be more artistic with my cooking and be better at blending flavors together. Yeah, that's uh, something I've brought up a couple of times on, on the show in past that last year was a whole new frontier for me in, in learning how to, because I went much more plant-based to my diet. So I had to learn how to cook a lot more because I don't do takeout anymore. So that that's definitely been been interesting for me. Yeah. So the next question here, I guess this this one could uh, get a very interesting answer from from you based on your um, your kind of hat collection, as it were. Um, I, I have this. I had this idea. This is a newer question. I think it's only been on the show for a few episodes now. Um, actually, maybe getting close to ten. But anyways, um, so. I had this idea that like when we're in school, there's all these like mandatory subjects that they tell us like, this is absolutely critical, like for a life skill for you to get a job and et cetera, et cetera. And there's like, but there's so many things that we tend to end up learning once we get out of school, once we get out into life or the real working world. And, but then I've also heard interesting stories from people well before I did this show of how they took a skill or like a specialized piece of knowledge and applied it to something that it would normally never be like meant for, but it ended up being useful or applicable there. So I like to ask now, what has there ever been a situation where you have unexpectedly uh, or applied a skill or, or particular knowledge in an unexpected way? <laughs> I'm going to go with the first thing that came to mind, which was one of the things that I learned in school unofficially, this was not a, not a class, was bullying bullies. And I hadn't real like, I remembered that in my head that like, I was someone who was very much like, if a teacher was being mean to a student, I was absolutely in that teacher's face. Um, if another student was bothering, especially someone more marginalized than them, I was in the middle of that. I was, you know, put, made to stand on the wall a lot. Um, and I like vaguely remembered that, but I didn't really remember specifics. So I checked in with my parents and my parents were like, oh, we got called down to the office all the time. But the school never like punished you really other than like they talked to us, they didn't punish you because oftentimes you were doing the stuff the teachers weren't allowed to do. So like they couldn't intervene the way that you could and you had to be disciplined, but like also someone had to do that. So, and like, that's a really interesting thing to have learned of like, when are rules, good to break and for what purpose to what end when is it not a hill to die on and when is it a hill that is worth dying on um picking your battles that kind of thing so like yeah that was something that i learned very significantly in my school experience that is absolutely 
integral to how I live my life. But also with that comes a huge amount of responsibility to make sure that you're not going overboard. You know, like it's one thing to de-escalate a situation and to physically stand in the middle and to be large and intimidating for that purpose. But you have to also note when the situation has de-escalated and then stop and then shift gears completely to being chill so that you're not escalating it again. And that's, yeah, that not, not a subject in school, but certainly something that came up a lot in school. <laughs> that That's a really, yeah, that's a very interesting answer. When you said bullying bullies, I was not expecting that to go where it did, but yeah, like sometimes people just need to kind of get put in their place in a sense and it kind of like you know showing someone how it feels to do to other people or to do to them what they're doing to other people and it helps them realize oh yeah this kind of sucks i shouldn't do it anymore and it may not always work but it's you know sometimes it's worth a, a try anyways i mean it was a huge part of my street medic stuff i i live in berkeley which is where a lot of the battles for berkeley were happening so the proud boys were coming here and like starting trouble a lot. And being someone who is a large woman who also dresses very feminine and often went to protests in like pastels, like did not try to blend in, but tried to stand out and look as much like a My Little Pony as possible, but was also perfectly happy to like grab somebody by the shirt jacket and just hold them against a wall and be like, we're going to do this till you calm down. Like, I, I'm not trying to be aggressive here, but also this needs to stop and you need to stop that sort of, I don't know, it's, it's, it's almost like forced mothering in a way is very deeply unsettling for a certain type of toxic white masculine person. And they don't know how to respond because part of them is like, I need to fight this person who is in my way. But there's also this, this person is a woman and I cannot be seen on camera punching this woman in the face. And like knowing that, being comfortable being punched in the face, but also knowing that the likelihood is their cultural misogyny is going to prevent them from doing that is such a weird place to be. It's something that I try as much as possible to only implement when absolutely necessary when someone is being physically harmed until I step in um, and only doing it for as long as is required for that situation to de-escalate. But yeah, it also comes with risk. And it's also, you know, that is part of my white privilege. So like being aware of like trying to use my white privilege for good, but also understanding that like, the reason it works is because of this perpetuated power dynamic. And like part of the reason why men don't want to punch me in the face is because of misogyny and because of ideas about femininity. Do I want to challenge them right in that moment? No, <laughs> like, preferably no. Like I'd much rather they see me as like, oh, this is a very feminine woman. Therefore, I don't want to to be seen hurting them. Um, Complex stuff. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so this next question, I also suspect might get an interesting answer. Um, 
I so this show is based around this idea of metaphorical hats, and we obviously wear a lot of different ones, and they can be very like kind of opposite to each other. And so, a question I developed for this show that uh, does tend to get some interesting answers is. I've been asking, what would you say are your most, your two most dissimilar hats and hats in this case being either skills or interests? Oh, I mean, I would say like sex worker and doomsday prepper definitely are two really dissimilar seeming things. Um, And it has been an interesting experience. Like for example, on Twitter where I am both of those things very vocally, yeah, like I'm trying to sell sexy content and also tell people about fire safety. So it can be um, jarring to a large number of people, but it's also really intriguing to the kinds of people I want as my, as my clients, I guess. So like, it's one of those things where I had to learn to lean in that I wasn't going to be everybody's cup of tea, but for the people who liked what I had to offer, they really, really liked it. Oh, that's definitely interesting. Thank you for sharing that. Um, <laughs> a new question that I'm I'm starting to test drive on the show here now. This is something that I think I haven't really addressed as much in the show in the past, but I think it's something that would be interesting to get um, a variety of different people's takes on it. Um, so I'm going to start to ask, starting now, um, what do you think, or what in your opinion is kind of one of the, the best aspects of modern technology and one of the worst aspects of modern technology? Oh, I would say for both things, you're never alone. That is both the best and the worst thing about it. It is awesome that it is possible to create a really solid online community that can help you feel held and heard all the time. I mean, I have friends all over the world and it's fantastic to be able to stay in touch with all of them. Also, it can be a little emotionally exhausting to constantly feel like you're on call. It's definitely, you know, it's one of those selfish things, right? Like I want to be able to ask for help whenever I need it, but I don't necessarily want everybody to ask me for help. Um, (laughs) And like learning how to balance that has been really important um, because I can't help other people when I'm not at my best um, or when I'm not taking care of myself. Um, But also I don't want to get so wrapped up in taking care of myself that I don't take care of other people. Um, Part of the oxygen mask, you know, put on your own oxygen mask first is that so you can help other people. And um, I definitely sometimes see that in like, self-help conversations, uh, self-care conversations. is like, oh, well, I'm just going to do self-care for the next like five years. Like this mm-hmm. kind of missing, missing the point. Uh, community care is also self-care. Yeah. So I would say like it is both extremely helpful to have a bunch of communities available to dip into and like learn from so many different people, hear from so many different voices. But also, um, it can be exhausting to deal with a constant barrage of trolling and doxing. Um, Thankfully, I've only been swatted once, but that really 
was terrible. Um, and so like that constant availability is definitely a double-edged sword. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I'm tempted to give my own anecdote to that, but I'm trying to be time sensitive here. So I'm just <laughs> going to roll along. Um, so we're going to get into a few, I guess, slightly heavier questions now. Um, so obviously close relationships are, are very important, uh, in a lot of senses in our lives. Um, both from kind of, you know, the, the start that we're given growing up as well as the help or hindrance that happens along the way. And so I come up with this concept of hype hats who are supportive people and heavy hats who are people that kind of, you know, hold you back or slow you down or kind of create doubt in you. And this question exists largely to try and help people learn to identify and understand how to identify like positive influences in their life and positive and positive presences in their life and people who maybe they don't quite realize just how much a person might be actually detracting from their life or, or hindering them or something. And so I asked the guests, you don't have to name any specific names, but um, just maybe a general example uh, from your life of someone who has been a hype hat, who has been a great supporter and someone who's been a heavy hat and sort of like kind of compare and contrast and like illustrate why that is. Well, so my first thought was like, you know, my housemate is a great hype hat, like is my polar opposite in a lot of ways is like a, very hippie Pisces feelsy kind of person and I am like very grounded and very like focused but we balance each other out really really well and it is so nice to have somebody to talk to about emotional stuff or relationship stuff who has a very different viewpoint than I do and can challenge me but also can reflect back to me when I may be perpetuating a pattern that's not healthy for me. But I would also give a shout out to my mom, who was a heavy hat for me for a long time. And we had some very big clashes and fought a lot when I was a teenager into my 20s. Um, and then through having strong boundaries with each other and also admitting our vulnerabilities to each other. Like we had some very intense conversations where we talked about how we had failed each other and we're very honest about that. Now she's probably one of my biggest hype hats. And it's, if you told teenage me that that would have happened, I would have laughed in your face. Like that absolutely not. It's so interesting to see that having boundaries and having standards of how we interact, both me for her and also her for me, has led us to become much more comfortable in being intimate and vulnerable with each other in a way that we didn't realize we really needed. Um, and it's really touching now that like my mom is more comfortable talking about some of her own trauma and like is available to listen to my traumas and we can have those conversations without it being accusatory. And in that way, that healing some of the deep hurts that I had been carrying. Um, and I'm so, so glad that we managed to do that work. I genuinely thought maybe 10 years ago that oh, she would die and we would never have 
had any of these conversations. So I have a lot of respect for her that she was able to hold space for the ways in which she hurt me and, um, and actually work on it, um, which made it feel safe for me to do the same. So that was really, really cool and very unexpected. As for heavy hats now, like honestly, for better or worse, I kind of get rid of those people very quickly. Now, I haven't always been that way. I've definitely stayed in relationships a lot longer than I should because of that. But now it feels more stressful to be around someone than it does to not be around them. I just am not around them anymore. I generally give people a couple of chances before I get to that point. But knowing myself really, really well has led me to be able to say, like, this is what is not working for me. And if that is something you need from a person in your life, then I'm not the right person to be in your life. And that's not to invalidate that that's your need. It's just not something I can do. Yeah. And and so, as you said there, like you figured out um who the heavy hats are and you don't keep them around and so that is kind of the ultimate goal of this this question is to try to help my audience cuz i have learned a lot in the last few years myself about identifying so called you know toxic people or like what abuse is even if it's really low level like just learning to identify it at all and and kind of like you said like like reflecting on do I feel better having this person in my life than I feel I would feel not having them in my life? And so this question might still need to be restructured a bit to kind of, cause like I, I, I framed it this way to try to have both an example of someone who is good and supportive and someone who isn't so that hopefully people can learn the people that don't already know can learn to identify those differences and be like, Oh, this person's a heavy hat for me. I should, you know, try to, distance from them um and like i think you're the first person to give an example on this show that i can remember of someone who started out as a heavy hat and um kind of learned from their ways and and evolved and grew and became a supportive person because that does happen too a lot of times the heavy hats are people that that are no longer in the person's life for obvious reasons but um so i appreciate that you know, cause there are these different possibilities. Um, so thank you for that. Yeah. Well, I think that's so, I mean, that's a huge part of the consent culture work that I do, right. Is like acknowledging that we are not always at our best and that we hurt people. I think it's super important. It has been really important to me. I never wanted to leave somebody because they were temporarily weighing me down. You know, like you get into that feeling of like, well, are, you know, am I leaving them because they're going through some personal stuff right now? Or like, am I leaving them because of their trauma? And for me, it always comes back to, are they growing and evolving? And do they get defensive when I say, Hey, you stepped on my foot. And if either of those two things are present, then my patience goes down drastically. But if they are able to say, Oh no, I stepped on your foot. I'm really sorry here's how I'm going to work on that. And then they do it and then they do the work. And similarly that I feel like I can say, I stepped on your foot. I'm sorry. Here, let me grow. Like if we can give each other that grace, then I think it's worth keeping that relationship around. If we can't give each other that grace, if we can't let each other grow, 
then it might be not the right relationship for right now. It doesn't have to be forever, but maybe not right now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the next question here on the list um, kind of relates to that in, in kind of an obvious way that everyone has a mental health. And obviously something that, that we, we're both, uh, it, it more directly affects the work that you do versus me, but I've had my, a lot of my own experience with it. But um, I, so I'd like to just, again, to help people who are watching or listening to know that they're not as alone and they're not as um, kind of isolated in, in maybe their issues or their experiences. So I like to ask the guests to whatever extent you're comfortable kind of speaking to it. Um, what mental health issues have you kind of dealt with in your life and what has kind of worked for you in working through them? Ooh, well, um, I was misdiagnosed as a 11, 12 year old and spent a lot of my teenage years hospitalized um, or in residential living programs. It was a time where if you were this female, you must have either bipolar or borderline personality disorder, both of which required extensive amounts of very heavy medication. In my mid-20s, I had a psychiatrist who said, this is not what you have. That's probably why you keep feeling suicidal on your medication. Um, you have anxiety and you're a woman in a society that doesn't really value women. Um, like, that is not a diagnosable mental illness. Um, that is a societal illness. And I was very, again, vindicated, I guess, to hear a professional say that and say like, oh, no, you're stressed out about the world because the world is a very stressful place. That's not a mental health problem directly. That's not something chemical that we can get rid of. And so like a lot of my experience with mental health care was like, I knew that the medication I was on was not helpful for me. It wasn't right for me. It wasn't hitting the right things. And I felt really depressed and helpless and hopeless because I took the meds and I went to the therapy and I did the group stuff and, you know, it wasn't working. It wasn't allowing me to escape this existential dread. And now I was diagnosed with ADHD and with social anxiety. Um, I was medicated for ADHD. I found that being um, medicated with Adderall made my um, attraction to stimulants much worse. So I'm currently spending some time off of Adderall in addition to, for example, cocaine, which is not a great way to medicate your ADHD, by the way, don't do that. Um, and uh, yeah, like learning how to exist in a world that in that wants you to be well in a very specific way. And I have instead had to restructure my entire life to fit my ADHD. So rather than trying to stifle my mental health to fit the world. I've changed my world to fit my mental health. And again, I'm so lucky to have a Patreon that allows me to do that, that pays my rent so that I can live my life in that way. And it is, it's not financially stable by any means, but I no longer feel emotional distress. Like I have never felt emotionally more stable because 
I'm not making myself go to a job. I don't have to mask. My friends all know what my mental health issues are. They know that if I'm uncomfortable at a party, I will just leave and I'll send them a text later and be like, sorry, I had to go, (laughs) you know? And it's so nice to live in a world that is open to that, you know? Um, So I I think that's a a driving force of my activism. I want other people to live like that too. I I relate to some of that again. It's, this happens a lot with my guests, and I don't know if it's just that a lot of my guests also end up having ADHD as well. Or, but the the next question here, the the preface for it is that failure can be a good thing. Which, um, <laughs> yeah, as I was gonna say, I'm sure you, you have lots of experience with that. Um, but again, this is to try and be sort of like a, an educational opportunity for the listeners. So I ask the guests, um, what is so again? The preface is that. When we when we do things and they don't work out, whether it's like something that was really disappointing or something that just didn't quite go the way that we wanted, uh, or something we just actively kind of you know bombed or whatever, it can teach us like that maybe that wasn't the right thing for us anyways, or this is what we actually want, or oh I dodged a bullet there. Um, and so, can can you think of an example in your life of a time where you kind of failed at something uh, or didn't go the way that you'd hoped, but that you learned something like a valuable lesson from that. And what was it? Oh yeah. In the middle of the pandemic, I broke up with my boyfriend of four years because he, I, I had a cat who was dying and I asked him for support and he was incapable of emotionally supporting me to the point that he got kind of mean about it. I remember at the time just being completely boggled that that would be anyone's reaction to somebody going through something, but also wanting everything to be in writing. We broke up via text because that way, every time I question, should I have done that differently? Or did I make that worse in some way? I can go back and read it and be like, nope, nope. I behaved perfectly there. Like I did that pristinely. Um, and that was a situation where on paper, we were good partners for each other. But in practice, I am a anarcho-syndicalist and he was an emotional libertarian. Like he believed that people were islands and I believe that we are responsive to our environment. And uh, that was just not going to be workable long term. So it's interesting because like that's, a failure in a way, I don't think it's a failure really of on either of us individually, necessarily. The relationship certainly failed. But also it was really great because I, for the first time, recognized it before it got really, really bad. We didn't have a huge screaming fight. Nobody's stuff got thrown out onto the you know, onto the street or anything like that. Um, I just realized that this was not the right situation for me, and I ended it. And I ended it without losing my uh, my center. Weirdly, I think I've become more comfortable with failure through playing Dungeons and Dragons um, and playing characters that are constantly messing up and tripping over themselves. It's made me realize that a story is almost made better because you stumble and fall sometimes. 
nobody wants to read the story of the person who's always successful at everything they do. Like, <laughs> you know, that makes us feel bad about ourselves. We will, we like people who are relatable. And that has made me feel like I can fall and I'll be okay. I'm not afraid of losing a person. I'm not afraid of losing my stuff. That is a part of life. Life is gaining and losing things. Yeah, it's nice to like be comfortable with that. Definitely. Again, I want to I want to offer my own anecdotes, but uh going to going to keep this rolling along. Um I I'm loving your answers, so I'm Oh, thank I you. I think that it's it's I don't need to say much and I love episodes like that. <laughs> but yeah, so this next question, obviously there's been a lot of indirect advice through a lot of the answers given and kind of some of the discussion, but I like to kind of formalize it to kind of round things out and um, distill it down to, I, I sort of break all of society down into three groups. So I've got kind of teenagers and youth and then kind of like 30-ish, 30 to 40 kind of people and then sort of like our parents and grandparents kind of generation. And so if you had to give advice to each of those groups, whether you give them all the same advice or you give individual advice to each group, what advice would you give to each of those groups? To youth, I would say think critically. Understand that whenever somebody says that they know something for certain, it's very unlikely that that's true. Um, there are very few things in this world that are completely certain. And we're constantly learning new things. So, like, be open to accepting that you don't know what you don't know which I think that can apply to all of those age groups. But I feel like when you're younger, there is a lot of people telling you what to think and how to exist and what to believe. And it's really helpful to understand that that is their reflection of their own insecurities and their own environments and not necessarily the truth. There are many truths. So that would be something I think is is useful. To people in their 30s and 40s, write a living will. Like, you know, like get the paperwork done. My family is going through so much right now because they have not written wills. And, you know, my grandmother died over the pandemic and did not write a will. And so the entire family is in an uproar about it. Just write a will. Just think ahead. Have some plans in place for like, who is going to take care of your pet or like what happens to your bank account. Um, just a nice thing to have sorted out. I would, I guess another thing I would say to both youth and to um, people who are like our parents age is they should talk to each other more. Like, I think it's so important for us to have people in our communities that are not of our generation. I value having queer elders so much and I'm in a place that I can be of use to them as well. And like, we need to like create those networks a lot more, not just for like physical practical reasons, but also because it encourages us to keep our minds flexible, both to know our history and also to keep our minds open to possibility and curiosity. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, a past guest uh, from episode six, I believe it was, uh, mentioned that they felt the uh, the intergenerational friendships were extremely important. And that is something that 
I need to work on in my own life for sure. And as hopefully as I uh, start to interview, because I, I actually may have my second kind of like grandparent uh, guest on in the near future. So that's, that's kind of exciting. And I'm hoping that I can stay in touch with some of these people uh, as time kind of goes on. So thank you for that advice. I yeah, appreciate totally. it. And so now we get a chance to, uh, I like to flip the script and give the guest an opportunity to ask me a question, put me on the hot seat. Um, I didn't know if there was a question that uh, I meant to ask ahead of time and I forgot. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it could be a question from this show already, or it can be something else. Um, what would you like okay. to ask me? <laughs> I'm going to ask something extremely frivolous. What if you could like outfit yourself in any aesthetic, what is your like fantasy aesthetic? So <laughs> I do have a variety of aesthetics that I like, but one that admittedly I kind of wish that I could spend more time in, and this might surprise some people, but maybe not if they really know me. I feel bad saying this. I feel like it's unfeminist, but like the fifties housewife kind of like, I don't know why, but that just like the, the dress and the heels and the earrings and the, like the hair and just for some reason that, and I don't get to wear dresses nearly often enough. So that's one I wish I could spend more in besides that. I generally like to just have stuff that's like comfortable, but coated feminine. So and like because of my like autism and sensory issues and stuff, um, there's certain kinds of like fabrics or certain types of like whether it's tight or loose that that are comfortable. So it's usually either like something like really overtly feminine and maybe a little bit more like kind of traditionally conventionally feminine, or it's just comfortable but hopefully still coated feminine. I guess. Interesting. Yeah, I'm 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 super into. I've been goth, steampunk you know, gutter punk, like all over the board. And like, I feel like right now I dream of being able to manifest both like a goblin core aesthetic, like a sort of tattered earth tony looking thing, sort of like, I guess, very Burning Man festival-esque type like stuff, but in plus sizes, which are impossible to find. Or alternately, like the complete opposite pastel rococo fluff like so many layers big hair so dramatic like you need several people to help you dress like so either like this complete like bog witch aesthetic or like <laughs> Marie Antoinette like nothing in between <laughs> yeah I some some of the people watching and listening to this might know a couple of years ago I did this project entirely by myself called the purple calendar and so i did this entire like photo shoot thing at home by myself and i did a different outfit for each month of the year and so i kind of did a range of some was a little bit more kind of like athletic masculine butch kind of stuff some of it was like very like more kind of feminine some of it was kind of more comfy like but i i own i don't like I said, I don't get to wear them nearly enough. Like also because of my sensory issues, I'm often wearing earphones or earmuffs. And so okay. having ear like dangling earrings is often not yeah. practical for me, but I love them and I want to wear them more. And um, I have like lots of like hair bows and, and other things like that. Like, maybe once the pandemic's over and I get to go out more and I can actually like get into that stuff more, but that's kind of like 
yeah, that's what I when I'm just home all the time. It's usually just like pajamas and like a t-shirt because it's comfortable. I feel you. I feel you. I've <laughs> but, been living living for sweatpants. <laughs> yeah. So so that's something that I am looking forward to when the opportunity uh, presents itself more prominently again. Um, so thank you for asking. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Um, yeah. And so at this point in the show, I like to try to kind of highlight uh, like charities or, or some kind of like um, worthy cause on each episode. And I give the actually it's just basically giving the guest a chance. Are there any um, specific charities or causes that you would like to promote or raise awareness of? One local is the Bay Area Workers Support uh, Group. It's a sex worker uh, organization run by and for sex workers um, and they do like street outreach and um, skill training uh, skill shares picnics um, all kinds of stuff so like I think they're awesome and more people should know about them similarly in the UK there is um, I think they're called swarm now um, but it's another sex worker organization that I think is fantastic and by and for sex workers doing really great work, both as activists and also just like taking care of each other in a way that I think is really solid. Um, other than that, I mean, I'll say uh, the International Day of Consent is um, always looking for support and looking for people who want to get involved. Um, our website is a little bit broken right now, but it's idoconsent.org. Um, so that's for International Day of Consent. Um, and we're also on Facebook. We're very available on there. Um, we have an event that happens in November, um, at the end of November. And uh, we'll be putting up requests for people who want to submit workshops or burlesque performances or comedy routines, pretty much anything that talks about consent and consent culture we're here for it. So um, yeah, we would love to get more people involved in that. And you can send us money. We would love that. <laughs> yeah. No. And I like, as, as uh, with, I think I was saying, yeah. Um, I always put a, like an overlay up on the screen and it's always in the episode description as well. So people can find that. Um, yeah. I, there's a bunch of charities that the show kind of uh, regularly supports. There's a Black Lives Matter button that's always on the screen. And um, there's a bunch more on the website as well. Um, okay. And like each episode, I usually get like something new. And so there's just a growing list of charities from, from past guests. And I think that's pretty cool. Um, so yeah, that is this point um, we do the plugs. And so I always let the guests go first. Um, where, uh, not only where online can people find you, but is there anything that you do that you want people to be aware of that maybe isn't like, directly kind of findable online? I am the editor of the book, Ask Building Consent Culture from Thorn Tree Press. It came out in 2017 and it's a collection of essays from a big diversity of people on what consent culture means outside of the bedroom. There, there's like three entries about the bedroom and then everything else is like consent culture in the workplace and consent culture in the medical field. Um, Cause I think it's really important that we talk about consent outside of sexual relationships. 
So there's that. Uh, you can find me on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram as Kitty Striker. I think on Instagram it's Kitty underscore Striker because I showed a nipple once and that was the terrible. Um, so they banned me. But now I have a new Instagram. Um, I'm also on TikTok and I post a lot of stuff about consent culture and queer politics on there, which is Kitty Striker. Um, don't Google me if you are at work because I did work in the adult industry and I want to make sure that like you're not seeing spicy content when you're not in a location that allows for that. And then other stuff that I've done, like I do this thing on Instagram called hashtag Kitty Learns to Cook. And I have a Patreon specifically for that. Um, if you have been intimidated about cooking, you don't know what all the implements in your kitchen do, you would like to know how to like cook good, uh, reasonably healthy filling food with whatever you have in your pantry, um, not necessarily needing expensive ingredients or expensive appliances. Um, yeah, you might want to check that out because I post um, the recipes on my Patreon and um, I talk a lot about what works and what doesn't work. <laughs> so you can explore all that there. Very cool. Um, yeah, that'll again be all on the screen, all in the uh, description of the episode. Um, as for myself, um, you can find well, you can find this show online at hatcollecting.com or at hatcollecting on social media. That is currently only Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, but might expand in the future. And my website is ArtemisCreates.com, where you can find all the different hats that I wear, including music, books, designs, merch, all kinds of stuff. Um, what else have I got here? Uh, yeah, and I put up a, an overlay on the screen, uh, kind of because I am on so many platforms and so many places. And there's a few different ways to kind of support me financially. There's Patreon, obviously, and there's a few others. Um, and yeah, if you can, uh, if you're listening to this through uh, Apple iTunes and you want to leave a review and uh, give a rating, that would help uh, boost the show, help people find it. Uh, also, like and subscribe on YouTube. Uh, that also helps. And, you know, I like to also ask for um, audience participation. If you are watching on YouTube or if you want to go to YouTube and leave a comment, what was the, the your favorite thing that you learned or heard on this episode? Or if you have any questions, because um, I like to just I like to hear from from people and kind of see again, because I love learning and I know people watching and listening to this are probably doing so because they enjoy learning as well. So what are you enjoying that you're learning from this show um, or what are you just? Happy, like happy about from it so oh yes and i forgot to mention it's not in my show notes i have to add it there i've mentioned a couple times in the episode i am doing a new sort of separate shorter series of episodes called fascinators and those are where i actually drill into a specific topic with the guest whereas here we keep it more broad and big picture so um that's also going to be a wide range of topics and uh they've been really interesting and fun so far so go to youtube and check those out um yeah now is the the traditional hat sign off as i uh, like to call it and i don't know if you have a hat uh ready ah you do okay I do. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah i forgot to like check with you on that but it's it's good that uh so now we can uh we have a couple of options we can either put them on at the same time we can do one first and then the other do you have a preference <laughs> oh no it's about at the same time all right <laughs> so do you want do you want to count us in or do you want me to count you you count <laughs> all right three two one hat <laughs> oh i have to hold this one on 
does that say? A fi- fish <laughs> oh, fear? Says, fish fear. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It says women want me. Fish fear me, and I think it's the funniest <laughs> thing I own right now. <laughs> I wear this hat every time I go to a mechanic, and it really like it sets the tone. I, I bet it would. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, this, this, the problem. Oh, there we go. Okay. I just had to pull it down. There you go. <laughs> These head, actually, I don't have a pair of headphones that hats fit nicely over for the most part. So I usually have to kind of improvise a bit, but this is a, uh, a, these are sequins, by the way. That's what's oh, kind of yeah. flashing here. Very sparkly. <laughs> um, and this is a fedora that I got from Value Village at some point. Yeah. So Kitty told me that she was uh, wearing blue and pink. And so I had the pink shirt and the blue hat. Um, but yeah, so with that said, that is, uh, this has been another episode of hat collecting. I really appreciate everyone watching again, please do check out the Patreon for bonus content or early access. And, uh, otherwise, um, thank you so much again, Kitty, for being on and sharing your, your wide range of wisdom and, uh, experience. And yeah, thank you so much for having me. (laughs) Yeah. And to the audience, um, Yes, stay curious uh, and keep collecting those hats until next time.